Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Well, we got a full house here. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show here on Podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107.3 app. So Orlando's here with me as well as James Peck, the best videographer this side of ever. And we got a chance to see a piece of work that we all got together on from last year with an incredible organization known as STAR. So first up, Orlando, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? James, welcome to podcast225.com. It's about time, James. It took you a minute. Thank you. <laughs> you can't pretend to be shy here. Yeah, he's not so shy. You, you are the, I call him the poker man because he's got that poker face when it comes to business, except if he's drinking that coffee. Which, which brand of coffee is that? Which one is that? This is the Ethiopian. I'm not sure. The Ethiopian? Yeah. The yeah. Yep. You, you will want to leave here and slaughter a lion with a spear. I would not recommend it, though. I would be hanging out around Brent Park. Did you say that because I'm African? No, actually, I did not. Oh, okay. But thank you for I'm making. So used to those jokes. So okay, it's not thank, even funny. thanks for making it awkward. Yeah. So <laughs> no, that's not not at all what what I meant. <laughs> right. So uh, it's it's interesting. I mentioned we were just at the Champions of Change breakfast. As you hear this, it was either yesterday or last week or whenever. But the organization is Star. The Sexual Trauma and Awareness Response Organization. We shot a video for them last year, and I think we all three can admit they're pretty doggone incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the event this morning featured stories from some of them and a story from one of their survivors. And that may have been the bravest thing I've seen someone do in terms of public speaking in person in a long time. In fact, I can't remember the last time I've seen something so courageous. Yeah, what about y'all? What do you think? That was, uh, that was crazy. I got goosebumps. It was so sad. Yeah, it was a powerful Definitely. story. She talked about an experience she had that included sexual assault, uh, abduction, well, she had said just she physical assault. She had throughout growing up but she never and she said she had it she said yes that she said how did she describe it by a familiar face right which could have meant anything family family, what neighbor whatever Mm -hmm. and i just thought the courage it took to tell that story to a room a room filled with strangers was pretty amazing and uh, they honored jay darden the commissioner of insurance who was lieutenant governor former state senator and now he's got a big job that is thankless, but he's a good guy. I think you guys could see why people like him so much. Definitely. And how was the food? I didn't get a chance to eat. Oh, it was pretty good. Bacon's always good. No, Just going to rub bacon, that in. Yeah. <laughs> bacon and... I, was, was that like a parfait? Was that mm-hmm. a parfait? It was. Crap. I didn't really touch mine. The parfait? Uh-uh. Why? too full. Uh, just, yeah. Full off the bacon, huh? Yeah, she, take her bacon she, wasn't eating. <laughs> she wasn't eating. Listen, we've had lunch with her. With she That's puts away. We, what was it? We're, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to give a free plug to the restaurant. But we were at a restaurant. She ate a rack of ribs. It looked like an accordion. And uh, That's right. Clay and I both had salads. <laughs> That's true. That's. I don't know if you had a salad. Did you have a salad? The, the, chi- the Thai Kai salad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, hint, hint for somebody who knows where you buy that. <laughs> She put it away. That was impressive. And she didn't rush through it. It was neat. She didn't have barbecue sauce all over her face. You're welcome. I'm ladylike. Uh, she's very much so. But you absolutely destroyed those ribs. Mm-hmm. And that's good. So <laughs> yeah, 
This morning was great. Uh, last week, we got a chance to shoot 20 cars. Uh, something like that, yeah. We did Acura, Infinity, and Subaru in the last two weeks. And I think about 20 cars. Yeah, 19, 18 to 20. I think we still have one more left. But. And Yeah, that's right. We have one more for Subaru, and then we got to go to Lafayette to, uh, to shoot some video there. You know, I, I was telling the people at Star, and we'll move on to today's show in just a second. I was telling the people at Star that the video that we did for them last year is, if not my favorite one, number two, and all of the videos I've ever done mm-hmm. because it was so authentic, the emotion from them. They were nervous about how they do. They stole the show. They were so genuine about the work that they do. And they had us so indoctrinated into their language that I was able to ad lib the, the VO for it without having to read, you know, really any script because you feel their passion. Yeah. Whenever you have that type of subject matter, it's just, it's so hard to try to balance um, without getting too emotional with it. Right. And then still keeping serious with it. But overall, I mean, their stories were, you know, just great. Well, listen, we're going to, um, we're going to be doing more with them and we're going to have them on the podcast at some point to talk about what they do. So today's show uh, features John Cuvion, the political analyst and scientist. He is the Frank Luntz of Louisiana. He's, mm-hmm. He knows his stuff. We talked about Wisconsin. And as you listen to this, the Wisconsin primaries have already happened. He predicted that Cruz would win. He predicted that Bernie would win. And he talks about a few other nuances that played out just as he said. We also talk about all five of the remaining candidates. And it's an interesting dialogue. And he'll tell you why he thinks the candidates are where they are and what he thinks is coming up. And it's a good conversation. We go well over an hour talking political stuff, and it's it's really good. So if you're into politics and you enjoy it, this will be fun. If you hate politics, <laughs> maybe not so much. But it's entertaining, though. We, we And definitely informative. Definitely informative, because I, I always say about John Cuvion, he calls balls and strikes. He doesn't tilt you to one side or the other. He just gives you right down the middle analysis. And that's why he is so credible. So we'll do that. And, uh, and then we'll come back on the other side of this. And uh, if James is not hopping around after drinking that coffee, he'll be here with us for the close as well. So John Cuvion is next. We're back in just a moment. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the Podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Back with John Cuvion, and he is uh, here to play, I guess... Amateur psychiatrist to the politically malcontent that that probably would make up most of the people now who are wondering which direction is up and what the hell is going on with politics here. Hey, Jay, how are you, JC? I'm doing great. In other words, psychoanalysis with data, right? Psychoanalysis with data. He said it better than I did. So, all right. So there's so much to talk about. Let's begin first with 
the topsy-turvy presidential election. Uh, where we are right now as we record this, by the time you hear this, the reality in Wisconsin will have played out. Yes. And I think the chalk is that Cruz is going to win Wisconsin. Stranger things have happened. Right. Uh, Hillary Clinton is projected to win Wisconsin as well, correct? Actually, I think Bernie Sanders is going to take Wisconsin. You think Bernie's going to take Wisconsin? I do, because Wisconsin has a history in its primary of supporting more liberal candidates on the Democratic side. He is that. And Wisconsin also was the birthplace. Uh, you had a socialist mayor in Milwaukee, and you have a very leftist electorate Thank in you. Madison, Wisconsin, which is kind of the epicenter of the state because you have the state capital and you have the university there. It was where bureaucracy was invented and workman's comp and a few other ideas that at the time were very radical. Mm -hmm. So point being is Wisconsin has always been very fertile ground for progressive politics. Yeah. Bernie is, of course, tapping into that. And I expect him to do well tonight. Or I guess it'll be last night or yeah. a couple of nights yeah. ago when this is being aired. But, you know, even at a higher level than what you just discussed, Clay, is the fact that this is one very topsy-turvy presidential election. Yeah. I remember in 2008 or 2012, I could basically predict who the winner or loser would be based on the state. Mm -hmm. Because once the primaries got started, you could say, okay, if it's a southern state, XYZ is going to carry it. If it's a Midwestern state, this person will carry it. Well, all of those rules have gone out the window with yeah. this primary season. Yeah. The one thing I have been able to discern as a constant in the presidential race is that Anytime Donald Trump gets into hot water, such as skipping debates or talking about jailing those who perform abortions and so forth, anytime he gets into hot water is when he gets into electoral trouble. Yeah. That's the only constant. Yeah. Because you remember that the uh, when he skipped the Fox debate, yeah. that was right before the Iowa caucus, and that was when he was surprised at his loss. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he realized there was something called a ground game, which yeah. all successful candidates have to have. He still doesn't have that, <clears throat> apparently. Uh, the, the scuttle from the inside is that Ivanka is holding very heavy sway over what happens, who gets close to him. Mm. She has apparently... Uh, been pressing him to look more presidential. She has also been after him about policy. Uh, I don't think he knows how to be anything other than the person we've seen on television for the past 40 years. Right. And that's the thing you've got to remember. Trump became a national figure, if you will, because of a lot of his tactics in New York and what he was able to do in Brooklyn. And he didn't become a mainstream television celebrity if that is such a thing until maybe the last 15 years with his partnership with NBC with The Apprentice and right. and other things that he has done let's let's get specifically into this now you've got five people left three yes. on the Republican side two on the Democratic side let's start on the Democratic side sure Bernie Sanders is a substantial amount of delegates behind Hillary Clinton yes it is Highly unlikely, nothing's impossible in politics, but it is highly unlikely that he will catch her it based is, upon the number. But that, let me get right. to the, but that's, that, that's kind of the preamble to the question. Sure. The question becomes, though, based upon the damage that he has done, talking about her connection to big money donors, to Wall Street, to her political tactics, it has worked in his favor. How will that translate 
into the messaging against her in the general. What I think is going to happen is that's going to push her to adopt more uh, liberal positions on issues because I don't think she really expected that the Sanders challenge would have taken off as much as it has. I think people don't like her. And I, I think it's helped a, him. And in fact, if you look at the county by county results in all these states, mm-hmm. the I don't like Hillary Clinton is a fair amount of the the vote that Sanders is getting. Because the one thing that has held the Clinton campaign together is what I call the big three. You have uh, blacks, Hispanics, and union members. That's right. In states where you have predom- where those groups predominate, Hillary has done well. Where she has not done well would be states where, say, you have a lot of uh, like university liberals, a younger sure. population, sure. an all-white electorate, like in those western states. There is an authenticity. There is, there is an absence of an authenticity to her. Yes. It's, you know what's surprising is I've often said she is often underestimated in terms of the way she campaigns and in her ability to connect with crowds. She's been on the stage for a long time. Remember, right. this woman came to the knowledge of the American public in the early 90s, 1992, alongside her husband. And this is after a, a fairly unceremonial uh, or unceremonious ending to their time in Arkansas yeah. as the first family there. She's been around a while and she's had tremendous staying power. But in this last three years, she's seemed incredibly sloppy. I think what has happened is that, and actually, if you really want to be hyper-technical about it, she has been in the political public eye since 1972 when she and Bill Clinton ran the McGovern campaign in Texas. Well, there you go. And because what happened is from McGovern came Bill Clinton's uh, unsuccessful congressional Mm -hmm. run in 74, Mm -hmm. attorney general of Arkansas, governor, and then he had that interregnum where he got defeated in 1980. Right. Then president, then New York senator and secretary of state. So point being is she's been in the public eye a very long time. 44 years <laughs> by that math. <laughs> yeah. And you, so you think about all of the eras that have come and gone since then. The What happened with Carter that led to the Reagan revolution from there to – and Reagan basically got three terms. The Bush term was, yes, was a, a third Reagan. Reagan term. And then eight years of mm-hmm. her husband, uh, she moves away to build her own name during the eight years of George W. Bush and then reemerges as a power player under President Obama. And now she just doesn't look like she has it anymore. Am I, I wrong? Is, is is that an unfair observation? What I think has happened observation? is that to some extent you had a very interesting partnership between her and Bill. Yeah. As in Bill was the politician and she was the one who kept the trains running on time. Well, now that she's – There's other, a joke in there somewhere, but yeah. I'll just let it go. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just say that basically think of Claire and Francis Underwood in the House <laughs> of Cards <laughs> – there's quite a bit of similarities. Oh, yeah, there is a lot of it. And so the thing is, Hillary's always been kind of the person who has, she's known what to do to get the job done. Yeah. But having the the love of the populace is not something that's ever been her strong suit. No, but she seemed to have connected better at times. But I just think yes. she's not good at not looking fake, if, that, if, if I may word it that way. She doesn't seem like she is an effective actress. You know what I think it is? And I've, I've seen this happen in statewide races here in Louisiana, and I'll leave names out to protect the innocent, although it was a major statewide race last year. I was going to say the innocent? <laughs> I'll say it's called frontrunner's disease. Yeah. 
In other words, what happens is yeah. when you've been in office for a while and you, you run for another office, you tend to get an attitude yep. that of entitlement, number yep. one, and you want to win so badly yeah. that you tend to play it safe and not do anything that might offend more than two people. Yeah. And so basically you become a creature of your consultants. No question. Basically you become a beige candidate. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's happened with Hillary Clinton is she's trying to be inoffensive and just be the presumptive Democratic nominee. She's hiding. Right. They, you know, they've spent money keeping big candidates out. Martin O'Malley was basically a suit dummy on stage with right. them uh, in the debates that he was there. And she had they've held debates in prime time against other programming that the American public like it was during the NFL playoffs. They had Ooh. a debate. Yeah. That was and there she wanted to have one recently. And, and Sanders called her out for wanting to have a debate during the final four. And he said that she's trying to do that so that most of America won't see or hear her real ideas. Yeah. And it frustrated her. And so I think she's going to be the nominee, mm-hmm. but I think she limps into the general election with lots of holes in her game. But whether or not those holes are capitalized on leads us, as we segue, to the other side of the aisle. (laughs) Now you've got three candidates, very popular governor of Ohio, who has been, by all accounts, widely popular across the political spectrum in his state. He has ties in politics. His bona fides go back to the Reagan administration and work that he has done there. Anyone who knows him or has read about him, and he being John Kasich, knows that he is an intellectual who does not have an appetite for attack nature politics. Right. You've got a red meat conservative U.S. senator from Texas who is a, a Cuban. He is someone who seems to resonate, his message does, with Tea Party types. And, you know, he, he's, he came to popularity just over the last year and a half. I don't think anybody know who, who knew really who Ted Cruz was outside of the uber political people right. before then. And then you've got the maniacal Donald. billionaire, <laughs> Donald J. Trump. So let's start with Kasich. You know, the interesting thing about Kasich, by all rights... If he were the nominee, he would win in a landslide. I, I he's, saw, he's the best of the three in I terms s- of normal. I saw a poll the other day showing him only trailing Hillary by five points in yeah. New York. If a Republican is trailing a Democrat by five points in New York, that means that you can carry states like New Jersey That's and right. Connecticut. That's right. In other words, a 350 to 400 electoral yeah. vote landslide. Kasich, however, has one very small or very large problem, and that is he's running a campaign from 1995. That's exactly right. And so when he goes on stage and talks about all the great things he did as budget chairman and so forth, he's basically playing the wrong note to Republican audiences. And that, to me, is what's hurting him more than anything else is it's one thing to be popular and sunny like Marco Rubio was – but it's another thing to keep playing the wrong music that people don't want to hear. And there's another thing, too, about the Kasich campaign, which I find kind of off-putting, and that is – and this is really wonky political insider stuff. That's okay. We I, like that here. Yes. It, I have smart listeners at the Clay you Young Show here. You do. Top, top-notch listeners. That's right. The thing I've seen over and over again with the Kasich campaign is I start hearing more and more stories coming out about how his campaign – did not do the necessary legwork to get him on the ballot. In other words, yeah, you know, petition signatures being disqualified uh, and so forth. 
that kind of stuff is technical inside baseball, but it does speak to a basic competence mm-hmm. or lack thereof mm-hmm. of a candidate. That is Kasich's biggest problem. The other thing, too, about Kasich, and this is something I've seen read, uh, I've read about in, in a couple blogs, is that the person who's running uh, Kasich's campaign is a guy named John Weaver, who mm-hmm. basically his MO is to have his candidates run to the liberal side of the political spectrum. Right. The problem with the liberal side of the political spectrum is, number one, there's not there that many of those votes. Yeah. And number two, that strategy, in my opinion, hurt Kasich in the beginning because he was competing against Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio yeah. for the less than super conservative vote. Because that's where I think the establishment, if there is such a thing, I, I just use it as an adjective. Right. I don't know that it, I don't know that the establishment actually really exists. I think right now it's anybody who could win the White House. But I think the establishment, if again, if I may say that, was probably shooting to be more on the moderate side. If you look at the slate of candidates that were up there, I mean, Cruz was probably considered the most conservative on paper yes. of all of the candidates to start from a Christie to a Jeb Bush to a Rubio to a Kasich to a Lindsey Graham, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Yes. Uh, you know, and then Jendel, who really didn't have much of a chance after the disaster of his eight years here in Louisiana. But there was also something else with Kasich that I'd like to bounce off of you, something I've seen with politicians on every level. And it it surprises me when I see it. And it always kind of belies something that's happening behind the scenes. It's the I'm just happy to be here attitude. Right. And I, I think there was a course correction somewhere along the way because he stopped making comments like that. Yes. In a debate you know, that he is clearly not winning. He's answering a question. And then he just says something about, uh, you know, I can't believe, I wonder what my parents would say to see their son here. I'm like, dude, are you serious? Yeah. It's almost like it reveals kind of a lack of self-confidence. Right. You know, it's the, look at me, I'm here on the big time now. You know, another thing too. Nobody remembers that in three months. No. But you know, another thing too about the Kasich campaign. So, I think he comes across generally well, and he would definitely have pull in a general election. But the fact of the the sloppiness with with getting on the ballot in several Mm -hmm. states. Another thing, too, I think has kind of hurt him in a way is that he doesn't really have much of a commanding stage presence. Nope. And so for the longest time, when you had nine people on the stage, that caused him to get overlooked. He was kind of like the last guy typically down there with Ben Carson, mm-hmm. who would get asked questions. I forgot to name him yeah, earlier. <laughs> Will somebody attack me, please? Yeah. That might have been the line of the debate season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and also, too, I think if since the candidates, uh, Trump and Cruz, that that is, are no longer interested in having debates, that's something else that hurts Kasich because yeah. once you got rid of all the other candidates, I think he could stand out on his own and establish his case. But if no one wants to debate anymore, he's basically relying on, you know, whatever media coverage can come along, yeah. plus whatever he could spend money on. So that kind of hurts him as well. But how has he been able to hang on this long? I mean, you just made the point there were at least nine candidates, maybe more. So many candidates, there were two debates uh, in the beginning, the JV debate and, yes. and then the varsity debate. How has Kasich been able to stick around? I think what has happened is 
when you had all these exacting mathematical criteria that were used to determine who went to the adults table and who went to the kitty table, right. Kasich barely made the cut each time. And you wonder now if, if things that he did, like, say, flooding the Boston media market with ads, notched up his New Hampshire numbers just enough to make him viable mm -hmm. and maybe give him a 1.04% poll average, whereas Carly Fiorina had 1.03%. She's another one. Yeah. Came and went, but I didn't think she had much of a chance. I mean, I, I think he, you and I probably not talking into these microphones, but if we were having a, a conversation somewhere over scotch or something, we could probably pick some names of people that we would assume wouldn't be there at the end. Right. And Kasich might have been in that group of people that we would have said, hey, nice guy. I don't know if he's going to be there when you get to the final three or four, and he's there. And so... Uh, I'll ask this question and then we'll move on to the other two Republican candidates. Yes. He is terribly far behind Trump and his only hope is that Trump doesn't reach the 1,237 delegate number, get into the convention and then hopefully shuck and jive his way to getting delegates to see him as probably, quote unquote, the most sane of the candidates. What does he need to do outside of that to stick around? He needs to sweep all the remaining contests, and that's a very tall order. Ain't going to happen. Because what you have happening now is you have a Trump vote, and then you have a non-Trump vote. And one of the things that's going to become apparent in the contest in the upcoming weeks mm -hmm. is, depending on what state that non-Trump vote is, you could have a different ratio of what Kasich is getting versus what Cruz is getting. Perfect example, when you have the Northeastern Super... T I'm, I'm going far ahead into late April. Sure. Because what's happening... Late April is in a couple of weeks, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think one of the things... I'm probably jumping far ahead to like the last segment of this show, sure. but I'm guilty of doing that all the time. That's, that's right. You know me. I by the way, you're competing with Condon as the most, uh, most, for most appearances on the show, oh. by the way. This is your third time here. He's not going to like that a whole lot when I tell him that, but you know, he'll just have to deal with it. Appreciate him, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke. Yeah. <laughs> so so go so, ahead. So what's, one of the things I think that's important for your listeners to appreciate is that the rest of the Republican contest has two characteristics to it. Number one, it's slowing down. Yeah. Number two, it doesn't really have that much left to it. Mm -hmm. So just to use the month of April, because I don't want to, I could spend a whole hour talking about everything up to June 7th, sure. which to me is a pointless exercise it because is. that's still two months away. Right. In the immediate future, though, which is important, here's mm -hmm. what you have. Yeah, Wisconsin tonight, or yep. <laughs> last night. As you night, listen or, to yeah. this, yeah, <laughs> earlier this week. <laughs> yes. After Wisconsin, what's going to happen is New York is in two weeks. Mm -hmm. So whoever wins or loses Wisconsin, that's going to dominate the press coverage for yeah. two entire weeks. Yeah. It's very tough to recover from that when you have no other contest to change the right. narrative. And what, there are no forums or debates between those two, are there? I understand, yeah. no. So after Wisconsin, what comes next? New York. Now, mm. yeah. And here's the thing about New York. Is, and we're talking about Kasich here. Or really any any of okay. them. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you have New York. And, and, act, and actually, that's that's a good point, Clay. Let me leave the candidates out right now yeah. because we still have to talk about Cruz and Trump. Yep, that's I'll right. just talk about the overall framework of April. Mm -hmm. So you have Wisconsin. You have New York in two weeks. And so then what's going to happen in New York is going to dominate the press coverage for a week. Right. What happens next, which is on Fe uh, April 26th, is a Northeastern Super Tuesday, as in you have Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. In other words, you don't really have any conservative electorates mm -mm. voting 
until Indiana goes to the polls on May 3rd. And Trump is likely to sweep a great number of those because of his uh, liberal voting history or his liberal, I shouldn't say voting history, I guess rhetorical history and, and positions that he's taken in the past. But so let's let's yes. move on and we'll, we'll, we'll get to Trump last. Yes. Let's talk about Ted Cruz. I personally think Cruz comes across weird and uncomfortable and inauthentic. I would definitely say unfriendly. Yeah. Uh, I've spoken to friends, and I'll leave names out too. I've spoken to to friends in Washington, uh, and he is not very popular among his colleagues for that inauthentic thing. And being, give you an example, Uh, two examples as a matter of fact. Uh, In Iowa, the games that they were played, that, that were played by members of his team. And then his response to that was so disingenuous. You know, the interesting thing about the games that were being played in Iowa, this is one of those perfect kind of things that you look at it one way if you're a political operative, but for the remaining 90% of people who are not in the political world, it looks like dirty pool. And specifically what I'm referring to was when CNN had published the false story about... Uh, uh, Carson getting out. Right, and so Ted Cruz's people basically took that story mm-hmm. and ran with it to try to persuade people at the caucuses right. that, you know, Carson was pulling the plug and why don't you get on to Team Cruz? Right. In the political world, that to me is just being competitive. No, it's, what, and it, it's what goes on. Again, I mean, I, you, you're right. For you and me, it's just kind of an ingredient that goes into the sausage. Right. But for the average person they see it as dirty and his response at first i think there was a there was a a a tepid denial and then after it's clear you did it you got to own up to it which and and there's been a series of those and so that was one thing i I said too the second thing was i i had not even known this okay i had i have not seen the movie the american president all right Mm. And it's a movie with Michael Douglas and uh, I forget the actress's name who plays his love interest in the movie. And apparently Cruz, in response to Trump's uh, uh, innuendo about his wife, responded to that uh, barrage on Anderson Cooper's show by quoting Michael Douglas from that movie almost word for word. (laughs) And so on Twitter, with social social media will savage you, uh, and it, it doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you're on. There, you know, the the Twitterverse, as they say, they're always looking for a victim. And so someone posted the line from the movie with Douglas, and then Cruz's response right next to it, and he says basically the same thing from the movie. Right. And it goes to the larger point about this guy not being able to be genuine. And that's been a big detriment to his campaign because, quite honestly, if you had, if we had gone back in time to January, I truly thought that what was going to happen was that Ted Cruz was going to sweep all the southern states, yeah. and that Super Tuesday was going to, you know, make him the the king. And of course, as we all saw, what happened was that did not happen at all. And Cruz basically has held on by winning Texas with its winner take all primary right. and some western states. Right. And so Ted Cruz's challenge, and so I'm, I'm kind of segueing from the personality to the data stuff. Because, oh, sure, because <laughs> you know, and, and, which is and, what and, I do. And, but yeah. and what I will, and what I will say, weird, and I'll, and I'll be honest with everybody. 
Uh, I don't know Ted Cruz. He could be a wonderful, dynamic man. I'm only right. talking about him as the candidate and the way that it comes across. And, and you know, really in the spectrum of politics, I don't know the guy to say he's a bad guy, good right. guy. I'm talking about the way he's performing as a candidate. He doesn't seem authentic. I so again, don't take this as oh, no, I hate no, no. To, not you. I'm saying for yeah, listeners right. that I take. I don't know Ted Cruz, so I can't can't make a personal judgment about him as a person. But I'm telling you, the weird part of it, the inauthentic part of it is he seems like he's playing a character. And I don't think people get and we'll get to Trump in a minute. Right. I don't think people get why he resonates so well. It is because he is so transparent, so believable and him being who he is that people excuse him for it but they just believe he's not going to lie to them right well i think i think what's going on with ted cruz and actually this is kind of a good way of throwing in a mixture of psychoanalysis with some data thrown in on top do it and so the psychoanalysis part is this i certainly agree with you that ted cruz does not come across as a warm fuzzy guy and there's actually been lots of articles written about it talking about how his his smile curves the wrong way and just, just a, weird yeah the facial expressions he gives so he doesn't give off warm, cuddly vibes. No. He doesn't seem strong either. Right. But what- Sniveling coward? Who the hell says sniveling coward? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You're down yeah. your sniveling coward. It's like, what? And one thing he has no control over, but I think it is something that kind of resonates poorly, is he has a very nasal voice. Yeah, he does, but, you know. Yeah. Listen, I mean, not everybody who's run for office has been a baritone. I mean, right. Bill Clinton got eight years and come on, he could have been an extra on the Andy Griffith show. So I just that, yeah, that doesn't bother me about him yeah. for me again. And, and people I've heard people savage his his physical appearance. Hmm. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. I just I, but, but I, think- I just think it, it, it just seems. Just doesn't seem there's something about missing. him that you can't close the deal. Yeah, and that's what I think is hurting him. Because the thing is, you hear all these stories about conservatives who like Donald Trump rather than Cruz, and by all rights, you would think they would be Cruz people because of the principles that Cruz is espousing. I just think there's something in the. I way don't think he, people believe him. Right. I think they believe he's learned how to recite notes from a playbook, and that's what he does. He's going to abolish the IRS, and he makes all these emphatic statements. And in the era of social media and the internet, the voting populace is probably more informed than it's ever been, mm-hmm. and that's not saying a lot because we still have a terribly uninformed uh, population. But they get more information easier now than maybe 30 years ago. Right. And you also have kind of the instant critiquing that can occur on social media, especially on the Twitterverse, where all it takes is one political operative following Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. to say, oh, he said this, flip, flip, flip. I know this is false. And then you put that on Twitter and boom, he's done. But you know another thing, too, when you talk about the pre-programmed talking points, that to me is what did in Marco Rubio. No question about it. Because Rubio had a much better and much more effective delivery than Ted Cruz did. Mm-hmm. But the moment that Chris Christie popped him in that debate, you could just see that air going. Destroyed him. He did. And, you know, he never did recover after that. Is that one of the worst, figuratively speaking, beatdowns that you've seen in a debate maybe in... The last three or four cycles. I can't remember anything close to it. The last the last time I could think of that was that vicious and brutal was the, you know, you don't, I knew Jack Kennedy. You're right, no, right, the, right. The right. Lloyd Benson takedown. Yeah. And, you know, the thing was, 
Dan Quayle responded to it in the absolutely worst way when he basically got all hurt and said that was uncalled for, Senator. In other yeah, words, he couldn't spell potato, so yeah, that, that he had a lot of things working against him. Yeah. So the point being is the takedown that Christie did of Rubio. I hadn't seen something that vicious since yeah. the, the Benson and uh, Quayle takedown '88. Let me throw this at you with Cruz because okay. I don't just want to savage the guy. I personally don't think he's genuine i'm just being honest i mean that's what we do we shoot people straight here but i don't think it's over if i were let's say you and i this would not happen but let's say you or i were working uh in the upper echelon of the of the cruise cruise hierarchy there one bit of advice that i would give him is to stop listen to the question think before you answer and don't recite talk don't just give the rehashed political lines that that you know the cadence is so canned and and overdone and and lots of people do it Jindal was a master at it yeah I'm saying stop and listen to the question and just answer them you you will be surprised what will happen in natural conversation when you hear the other person and you're speaking to them. And that would be the first thing. The second thing that I would do is say, when you don't feel like smiling, don't smile. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that's one of those things that I think has been kind of taken out of the mixture when you talk about a lot of these presidential candidates, is I think candidates get overly packaged, <sighs> and voters can see through that. No question about it. Because the thing about Cruz... The vibe I get from him, besides the you know not giving off the warm fuzzies, is he's the smartest kid in the class. Yeah, he's clearly uh, an intellectual. I mean, he's he's even more so than Kasich. Cruz yes. is a bookworm. He knows details, but he does he hasn't learned in in terms of politics how to be smart and also be relatable. Right. Perfect example. In terms of who, you know, the bookworm playing badly and the bookworm who managed to overcome his or her defects. Mm -hmm. The bookworm playing badly, I will give you a couple candidates, uh, John Kerry and Michael Dukakis. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) You know, when Kerry put on that silicone suit and was (laughs) (laughs) knees down, looking like he was wearing a massive condom uh, when he was in the x-ray machine, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And then Michael Dukakis, just with the whole thing with the gun and just, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. Then on the other hand, you have Bill Clinton, who, I even though he has a lot of academic credentials, he's very versatile. He's disarming. He doesn't, yes. you don't know how brilliant the man is because he's so disarming. He is a master. Under Ronald Reagan, he may be, in my opinion, the best communicator of the past 50 years. Yes. The perfect example of the Clinton aura was one of the debates, the one where I think this was the one where George Bush was caught looking at his watch. So when the woman in the audience asked the question about how the deficit, she asked the candidates how the deficit affected them personally, and George Bush fumbled it because he took a literal approach to the question. And Bill Clinton segued from the deficit to all the people in Arkansas who he was hurting, mm-hmm. and chances are in a small state he would know the factory worker who got laid off personally, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was a brilliant segue. I did too, but historically speaking, Clinton uh, loses that election without H. Ross Perot being in there. 
You know, that, and that's actually an interesting point, too, because that's been something that has been banded about the political world as conventional wisdom since 1992. Yeah. Stories I have read, and I, I will tell you that Michael Barone is kind of somebody I look to for. Sure. Uh, Michael Barone once mentioned, I think there was polling data available that showed that the Clinton, the, the Perot vote, rather, would have been split evenly between Clinton and Bush had Ross Perot not been in the race. So what that means in practical terms is that the Louisiana Perot vote probably would have gone to Bush, enabled Bush to carry the state, whereas, say, Massachusetts mm-hmm. or New York, the 20 25% who vote for Perot there probably would have gone to Clinton. So, But overall, it was a 50-50 split. He, I, that's, I've, I've heard that said as well. I, I guess I referred to the narrative at the time about the economy about, uh, you know, Perot having the business bona fides that he, I mean, that, that was his thing. He wanted to jump in because he was yeah, much like Trump is now. It's almost ironic about him being so concerned about where the country was headed. Right. And uh, I just think Clinton was so new and we equate a lot of things that he became known for. And I'm not talking about the, the negative things. I mean, his political strategy, we equate a lot of that with, the election, but much of that happened after he was already in the office. Uh, but I don't know. I, I just, yeah, who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of those barbershop things. What if? But yeah. But uh, I do think, though, that you know, kind of reeling reeling back to the original point. Yeah. And that is, if you're the smartest guy in the class, you do have to notch it down a bit if you want to project yourself yeah. properly to a national audience. That's Ted Cruz's challenge. Now, one thing I do want to be fair and balanced about with with regards to the Cruz campaign is he has a very good campaign organization. No question. In other words, they know. And what impresses me about them is they're top notch in two ways. They know how to find little little pockets of delegates to pick off Mm -hmm. here and there. And they know how to go find votes to mm-hmm. get here and there. And so it's a very it's, it's kind of ironic. Marco Rubio was very effective in terms of the message, but he had a very weak organization. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz is the opposite. He has a very strong campaign organization. It's just Ted Cruz himself does not project particularly well. I think he's trying too hard yes. to be a candidate and he should stop for a moment and just be a person. Yeah. That's it. Do a sit down with someone where you can talk. I thought something that helped Romney in his uh, campaign last year as one of those Hail Mary shots was an interview he did with uh, Scott Pelley. And he did a few of those, but I remember the one with Pelley. He's in his house and he's very conversational and Pelley is walking with him at a rally and they're talking as Romney is walking to the stage and Romney tells, you know, Pelly, let me go do this. And we don't realize it, but he's walking onto stage to greet a, a crowd at a rally. It was very personable for him. Romney had the same problem. He tried to pretend not to be a very wealthy man right. who has had privilege in his life. He tried to be a candidate, which is why he made the 47% comment. That was the dumbest thing to say Always assume there's an enemy in the room, regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on. When you're talking to a crowd, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, never assume that everybody in that crowd is on your team. Yep. Because all it takes is one disgruntled waiter, which in this case was was what happened. Right. And all of a sudden, Romney gets pilloried for being insensitive. But, you know, the thing about 47 percent, 
it would be one thing if 47% were the first blunder he had done. Yeah. But 47% yeah. came after a that, series of other right. blunders, like the Etch-A-Sketch remark, like all the yeah. uh, corporations or people to my friend. Yeah. Cheesy grits. Yeah. Oh, the cheesy grits. Don't bring that up, John. I'm going to I'm gonna pretend he didn't say that. He threw that red meat out there for me. I'm going to pretend you didn't say it. But, but I, I the, like grits. Yeah. Like, what was that? But I think the, the thing was, was that, there were two halves of Mitt Romney. Yeah, and I've from watching. I, I, you know me. I follow. I follow elections in all fifty states. Oh yeah, going back for years, and so I could tell you stories about all these candidates. And Mitt Romney, what I think was interesting was there are two halves of him. There was the can-do turnaround artist mm-hmm. who basically rescued the Winter Olympics. No question. And that was the version of Mitt Romney that won the Massachusetts governorship in two thousand two. The other Mitt Romney is the tentative, halting, smormy Mitt Romney yes. who makes goofy remarks, who comes across as clumsy. He can't. He's because he's not being himself. Right. That Mitt Romney was clearly on display when he ran against Teddy Kennedy in 1994. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was fascinating is if you go back on YouTube and find some old clips of the Kennedy-Romney debates, the stuff that Teddy Kennedy was lacerating Romney about one of them was Bain Capital. Mm-hmm. So any Romney campaign advi- advisor worth his weight in gold would have known that. Yes, and not just known about it, but formulated a plan to defend to respond himself. To. But Romney basically pretended it didn't exist. And to add insult to injury, the whole thing about signing the uh, the individual mandate into law in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and Romney tried to hide it and pretend it didn't exist. That kind of contributed to the swarminess, which when you combined it with Etch-A-Sketch and yeah. 47% and Cheesy Grits and the car elevator and and the strapping the car, uh, dog on the top of the roof, the whole package looked very bad. And I think that's what turned voters off of it. Uh, you know, the, the $1,000 wager in a debate with Rick Perry, oh, yeah. which, you know, his response to that could... Trump would have said, listen, that's peanuts, that's peanuts. Yeah, I'll make that in a second. Speaking <laughs> speaking of Mr. Trump here, as we, we move into the finale, see, we, we have a... We're like a movie. We have a, a cadence to this thing. Yeah. We're crescendoing toward the grand finale. And the finale's name is Trump. Yes. Bad week for him. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the rise of Dr- Donald Trump. And I don't think anybody who has any sense would be predicting the fall of Donald Trump. It's way too early to say right. fall. But the rise of Trump is clearly the story of this pa- this campaign season. You know, one of the things about candidates like Donald Trump or even Ross Perot, since yeah. you... Since you mentioned Ross Perot, there are some similarities. Oh, yes, there are. There's also some crucial differences, which I'm going to lay out shortly. The interesting thing about candidates like Trump and Perot is if you're an outsider candidate running at a time that voters are pissed off with politics as usual, there's always that lightning in a bottle moment. For Ross Perot, it was when he went on Larry King (laughs) and talked about, well, I don't really know if I want to be president. Larry, let me tell you something, Larry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Larry, let me tell you about that deficit. But when Ross Perot went on Larry King and, yeah. and basically played hard to get and said, well, I don't know if I want to run, but if the people will put me up to it, yeah. then all of a sudden all these petition campaigns. Oh, yeah. just, so that was the that was what ignited Ross Perot. Now, Donald Trump, I think what happened, for good or for ill, was when he made the remark about the Mexicans being rapists. Yes. That, that occurred last summer, as yes. you remember. 
and all of a sudden that ignited a firestorm because one of the things remember what he also said in that in that speech that was also the speech about the wall yes the that's wall. that was it was in the context of of the wall and trump's if i had to there was a long list and i want you to finish your thought but i'll just throw this sure. in there one of trump's biggest flaws is that he speaks in generalizations all the time right he does not nuance his his statements when he talks about banning muslims if you hear the entire speech because he's not he's not listening to himself he's just talking if you hear his entire speech he's talking in context of islamic terrorists right and then he makes a statement like that that is a great generalization that is ripe to be picked out and put on twitter or on video he talked about uh, Mexicans coming. He's, he was talking about illegals, and then he says they are. Well, he was talking about people who come here illegally, and then those among them who are rapists and murderers. And it's just it's it's ignorant and it's lazy to communicate that way right. because you have to know you're running for president of the United States, and if you say something like that, it comes out of your mouth. It becomes real to people, and you put that out there. Okay. Yep. Um, But that is also one of the things that has endeared him to people because he's fallen on his face at least a dozen times since last summer. And he bounces back because people say he's just being real. Right. Whether that's smart or not. Well, and you see, that's the that's the thing about Trump where you could make different predictions in the same sentence. The fact that he operates without a script is very, very similar to what happened with Ross Perot. Yeah. However, there is one very crucial difference between Trump and Perot, and that is Perot was basically, I guess, collecting the grievances of those who are mad at the federal government. And at the time, you had things like the house banking scandal Mm -hmm. and all that going on and, and a recession. So people were upset with the way things were. Perot was basically kind of speaking from the standpoint of the businessman who was mad at the federal government, and he, you know, he was going to get under the hood and fix it. Right. So that was the Perot appeal. Donald, and it was actually incidentally a nonpartisan appeal because if you look at where Ross Perot got his votes, he got unbelievably high numbers in places like Massachusetts and Oregon and places you wouldn't think characteristically would be Perot country. Right. Then we get to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is basically taking that same strategy, but he's also bringing racial, uh, coded racial language into what he's saying. What do you think about that? I think it's highly risky. See, the I said this on last week's show that the Klan snafu by Trump, I think he clearly heard the question. Right. I think his strategy was, I'm not going to lose these votes I'm going to say whatever I have to say to get these people to vote for me. Right. And I think that's what it is. And then after the fact, he comes out and he disavows, you know, the Klan and David Duke and all of that. But at the time, I think his strategy was, I don't want to offend anyone who may want to vote for me because he's running as a Republican populist, yes. not a conservative. Sure. And you you brought up the racially coded words that we have seen. And Trump has been friends with people like Al Sharpton. Uh, Russell Simmons has been a friend of his. And you'd have to be, and, and he's an upper East Coast Republican, I guess, Republican yes. for the last 10 years. That's not 
a Baton Rouge or Bossier Republican. <laughs> no, that you know, that's not uh, you know a Texas Republican or uh, you know a Mississippi Republican. But on the on the racial issue here, because I, I see all of these people calling him a racist, right? And from an from a from an analytical standpoint, just talk me through that. You said it's risky, and I would agree. But yeah. why? Okay, so from an analytical standpoint, the thing you have to appreciate is that politics consists of a lot of different coalitions. And the thing about these different coalitions is all of them have their little pressure points, as mm-hmm. in you say something that offends them, you lose that group automatically. Right. Like, perfect example. Let's let's say that you were Governor Charlie Crist of Florida mm-hmm. and you hugged Barack Obama in a rally. That one visual was very costly with conservative primary voters. Similarly— Didn't hurt Christie. Well, okay, and that, actually that's, that's an interesting source of debate there because in Christie's case what had happened was you could make the argument that that was kind of in conjunction with Obama came to— To help in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, right. which I, I will be honest, I thought the criticism of Christie was ridiculous, specifically from people from this part of the world, right. having been through what we've been through here, if the president shows up to help you. Now, I'm not making a political judgment because I think— uh, a lot of that was a little silly yeah. back then, but Christie's looking out for his folks and his state. You can't blame him for that. Right. But you could make the argument in terms of it hurting re- among Republican primary voters. It certainly got him reelected governor of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice his campaign never really gained traction no. in the presidential race. Now, some of that, I think, was just you had way too many people running. Yeah. But I do think that that was something that was back in the recesses of many primary voters minds and i'm sure that didn't help him right uh, yeah, so back to but anyway, tr- getting back to the yeah. getting back yeah. to analysis so so the thing that's always tricky about when you're making red meat appeals is the the words you used you could speak a hundred words but if two of those a hundred words are very incendiary words those people those two they. words that, yes not only just they but the fact that those two words are going to be what the media yeah. runs with five minutes ago you mentioned well if you listen to all of donald trump's muslim speech perfect example most people nope, aren't going to listen right. to the entire speech that's right all they're going to hear is you know the dirty muslims or build the yeah. wall higher and so if you if you as your if you make your campaign based on using incendiary language, mm-hmm. you gotta be very careful about who you piss off. I agree. I'll give you an example of language that pretty much accomplishes the same thing without kind of having that sting. I remember years ago when George W. Bush was running for president, and at the time English only initiatives were kind of the the rage. Mm-hmm. And the way that George W. Bush answered that question, I thought was a work of art. Basically, he mentioned about how English was the language of freedom and how if, you know, those coming to America want to move ahead, that they need that English is the language of freedom and that's what they need to be able to learn. So in other words, he took a conservative position, Mm -hmm. but he used non incendiary language. Right. Contrast that with something Donald Trump might say, which is, well, those bums need to learn English. So you see how. You're saying the same thing, but by using different words, you've offended the Hispanic vote. Because he's not sophisticated. 
And I mean, I'm yeah. talking clearly only in the perspective or in the spectrum of politics. Right. He, I, I do see the, the endearing thing to him has been, he's just who he is. He's unfiltered. Yes. He's unfiltered. And I think based upon his strategy, he lays out in the art of the deal and his business tac- business tactic is be the grandstanding berserker and negotiations. And the closer you get to sealing the deal, you kind of let your civilized self show. Right. And the last week, as we record this, he has owned up to the mistake about the abortion comment. Right. But here's what's interesting about that. I don't think that hurts him in the Bible belt, that statement. Right. And I know people say, well, how could you just trust me? Based upon things written and the way voters move to people on positions, I don't think it hurts him in the Bible Belt. I think it could do him some damage in, say, California, where he certainly would have done better right. than any other Republican. Or in New York, where I expect him to win yeah. New York. But, you know, I think where the damage is is more of a long-term thing. Because, right. you know, the old saying about you don't have a second chance to make a first impression. That's right. In my opinion, what's happening right now is not necessarily devastating for November, but if Donald Trump keeps making more outrageous statements that show a less than presidential side of him for the next couple months, I do think that that would be something where there'd be irreparable damage. Mm -hmm. Because, like, take Mitt Romney. So the Democrats were running ads in Ohio and Pennsylvania, places like that, in the summer. The political novice would say, why on earth would you be running political ads in June. Well, the thing about that kind of strategy is if you're doing ads in heavy rotation that's saying, you know, Mitt Romney is Monty Burns, he's an evil capitalist, he wants to, you know, send all the jobs south, et cetera, et cetera. You're creating an impression. You are. And that impression, if not counteracted. That's right. Yes. Whatever happens after the impression either uh, underscores it as true or disqualifies it as not real. Yes. But that is dependent upon the other side. Exactly. So in 2012, the Obama campaign pretty much challenged the airwaves, and Romney's people let it—they didn't answer it. In 2004, the Swift Boat ads yeah. basically created an impression on John Kerry. In 1988, Lee Atwater— using Willie Horton right. and similar. So point being was, in each of those cases, the battle was won well before Labor Day because yeah. an impression had been planted in people's minds. And once that impression is created, it's very tough to move voters. Yeah, That is what I think there is the potential of happening in the Trump campaign. This is the most crucial eight weeks yes. for the Republican candidates because... I think we will agree it will be hard for Trump to get to 1237 before the convention. Right. And in fact, that that's starting to become an interesting metric that needs to be repeated mm-hmm. is how close or far away is Donald Trump from getting the magic 1237 delegates. Now, if one takes the Associated Press at their word and looks at the delegate count literally, sure. Donald Trump currently has 48% of the delegates. Mm-hmm. It's a huge head start to yeah. be sure, but there's a couple things going on. Number one, he has to get a majority of the remaining delegates to get that 1237. Right. You only have a couple of winner-take-all states left. What the implication of what I just said was this. 
he could be sweeping all these states, but if Ted Cruz and Casey get a portion of the vote, uh-huh. they get some delegates. That's right. And that makes it harder for Trump to get to 1237. But there's also kind of an undercurrent here, which hasn't yet been mentioned, but the Louisiana primary contest yeah. has blown it out into the open. Just because someone is listed on the tick sheet of the Associated Press as being a Trump delegate does not necessarily mean that's going to be a case because you have all these little intricate delegate rules in every state yep. where if party it, delegates who typically are party activists get selected at convention mm-hmm. and they are uncommitted. That's right. And that's a high number. Yes. You get to the convention without the 1237 threshold and a lot of delegates could say, hmm, you know what? Uh, I was with this guy before, but now I think I want to be over here. Right. Which is which is where the possibility of, and here is the curve I'll throw to throw at you. Okay. And I'll, I, before I say that, let me say this. I know I want to do a part two to this, <laughs> but we, we will do it week after next because I want what's happening in Wisconsin to play out. And I want to be close to that, uh, closer to that Super Tuesday period right. and and the next round of... Uh, of, of April 26th. Yeah, April 20th. So yeah, that's the about Northeastern right. Northeastern Super Tuesday. So... Yeah. Going back to the point I was going to make, getting in, into the convention, if Trump doesn't have the 1237, I think this is why you see Rubio trying to hang on to the delegates that he had and why the name Paul Ryan keeps popping up as a possible nominee. Right. And I will ask you this for people who are saying, how could that happen? It can happen. Let's talk through how that becomes a reality. So basically what the assumption is with this Paul Ryan boomlet is that you start getting into rules of how uh, ironclad those delegate pledges are. In uh-huh. other words, just because they're listed on the scorecard as a Trump delegate, does that truly mean that they're going to support Donald Trump on the first ballot? Or where it gets even more deadly is if you start getting into the second or third ballot uh-huh. where the rules are off, so to speak. That is where the thought goes that Paul Ryan would be this compromised candidate who could you know, save the day and... Be- I don't think he'll do it because the downside for him, if this fails, is he's done irreparable damage to his reputation. Yes. I think if you do this and you're successful, there will eventually be a coalescence around you uh, by people on the Republican side. But if you fail, you're just a weasel who came in in the last minute, who didn't do the legwork, trying to steal it from guys who've at least been in the trenches for all of this time. And... That's also the equivalent of setting off a thermonuclear bomb. That's right. Let's go back in time to 1968. The Democrats had assorted candidates running for president. In Chicago. Yes. (laughs) The Chicago Convention. So what had happened... Daily getting caught on camera cursing at people. Yeah. And so the thing about the Chicago Convention was that... So you had these various Democrats. Well, first, President Johnson took himself out of the race. Mm -hmm. Then you had Eugene McCarthy. You had Bobby Kennedy... You had George McGovern. And then out of nowhere, Johnson's own vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who had not competed into a single primary, suddenly got the nomination awarded to him. And you had riots in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that was that was a huge blow to the solar pluses of the Democrats. They started off 20 points behind. And it was only when the Democrats started pointing out certain things about Nixon and his vice president, yeah. candidate Agnew, yeah. that that 20-point deficit closed up yeah. to nothing. If you were to have a thermonuclear bomb like that, first of all, you have to assume that 
Cruz and Trump would accept that reality, which that not going to happen, nor Kasich, nope, nor Rubio, nope. Because the thing is, Ryan would be thought of as some guy who's jumped in and stolen an weasel. Yes, there's also something else which I think would make it a very deadly option, and that is you have a very, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with those running the Republican Party mm-hmm. amongst Republican activist voters. And I think, and this is part of what led, in my opinion, to the rise of Donald Trump, in addition to his remarks about the Mexican rapists and so forth, part, in my opinion, of what led to the rise of Donald Trump was, in the old days, Republican nomination contests were more like coronations. Yeah. As in, once a candidate caught fire, that was it. In the old days, that's the way it was four years ago. Yes. That was the attempt eight years ago, but it failed, and McCain came in the back door. Yes. But this Romney coronation had been in the works for a while, as you well know. It had, and here's the thing about that, is that nothing nothing is worse than repeatedly losing. Whereas if you keep winning, nobody questions your motive. Right. When you have a situation where no Republican has been elected with a comfortable majority since 1988. That's right. You, I was waiting on you to stop, to go to that point. (laughs) You're in my head. Yes. That is, (laughs) let me just throw this in as you run down your analysis there. You are so correct. The contested 2000 election is an example. Yes. The Bush 04 election was as much about Kerry being a bad candidate as anything else. It was. Uh, The war was becoming more unpopular. There was political instability because people had come together in November and October of September 11th, and then by March of the next year, as you remember, that's when we went into Iraq, people had retreated to their sides. Kerry was a bad candidate. I want to jump ahead because I know in two weeks we'll come back and do more of this. Yes. But... For the Republican Party, Hillary Clinton is likely to be the Democratic nominee unless something crazy happens, and I don't think we expect it. She comes into this election beleaguered and not very popular uh, in, in the middle of the political spectrum. She's not a strong candidate. She's not Barack Obama. Right. But she can beat a weak and inauthentic Republican candidate. Yes. That's the truth. So that being the truth, why are people on the Republican side still jerking around when the reality of winning is no far gone conclusion? She's not a lightweight. Right. You know, what's interesting about the question you asked was I was going to give you a two point answer, a two part answer. And now I have a segue to the through those two parts, (laughs) as I always do. So when you're talking about the fact that the Republicans have basically had a presidential drought for a couple decades, Mm -hmm. they they really haven't had good election nights for years. Right. And so the deal that that happened with McCain and with Romney in 2008, 2012 was many conservative activists were told, look, He's not perfect, but he's electable. And I think you do have a lot of conservatives who bought that line of reasoning. But by the time Mitt Romney came around and he blew a campaign that he could have won, I think that Republican conservative activists felt that they had been told one too many tall tales. Mm-hmm. And then they took the opposite approach that says, we don't care about electability anymore. We want a candidate who we like. I think that's part of what's powering oh, yeah. Donald Trump's no run. No question. So... To get to the second part of your question about Hillary Clinton and being beatable, I think what happens right now, what's happened is that conservative primary voters are so cynical about the supposed electability argument that 
that's probably part of what's hurting a Kasich yeah. or a Jeb Bush or a Christie or anybody like that is once you say that they're electable, it's almost like there's kind of this feeling to kind of thumb their nose at the establishment and say, you know, we're going to support who we want. Right. Or not support anyone. Right. As in the case of McCain and Romney, where a, a lot of Republicans stayed home. Yes. And that, that could happen again because Democrats will support the Democratic nominee. They will. And also, too, one of the things, you know, it's kind of funny when prognosticators basically decide an election before a single vote is cast. <laughs> right. When I was growing up, back I'm in those, guilty of that sometimes. Yeah, it, it happens. <laughs> when I was growing up, I remember the. Right more than I'm wrong, though. <laughs> you have a good batting average. <laughs> I do. <laughs> when I was growing up, one of the stories that was drilled into my head was that you had the electoral college lock, as in yeah. Republicans were always winning California and Illinois and states like this, and <laughs> right. therefore they're going to be president <laughs> right. forevermore. Well, How's that working out? Yeah, that got turned on its head in 1992. Right. And you've had, it's almost been eerie the extent to which states have basically remained stuck in the electoral holding pattern they were in 1992, which mm-hmm. is almost every northeastern and midwestern state has gone Democratic for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the South and West have largely been Republican, but the Democrats have carved out a few states like Virginia and Colorado and New Mexico, and then done very well on the West Coast. The electorate's getting younger, yes. John. It is, but you know, the way I look at the young vote is this. Political attitudes amongst the young are cyclical. No, no, that's true. I don't mean younger as in young people, the 20, the millennial crowd. I'm not yeah. talking about them. I, I, was, I was having this conversation with, the, with a buddy of mine yesterday, and Roe v. Wade was in 1973. Mm-hmm. So, realistically speaking, many of the people voting now have been through two or three presidential election cycles in an era where they've only known a post-Roe versus Wade reality. Yes. So the litmus test factor of this is diminishing as uh, we are leaving the baby boomer era of American society, unfortunately, yes. but we are. And it, the electorate is a lot more liberal on social issues than they were 20 years ago. Yes. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, too, you bring up an interesting point, and that is you and me and everybody else in this world, we're a captive of what happened during the time that we started forming political opinions. Sure. So in my case, what happened was my attitudes were shaped by 1979 and 1980, mm-hmm. when you had an ineffective Democratic president, long lines at the gas station, the Soviets were taking over everything, it seemed. The hostages. Hostages, yeah. stagflation. So you had a very kind of negative connotation to what was happening when the Democrats were in charge. Then Reagan came in, and there was a lot of stuff he changed. But let's say, however, that your political attitudes were formed during the Bush era, mm-hmm. when you had two— Which Bush? Uh, George W. Bush. 43, okay. Yeah, Bush 43, good point. Yeah. Uh, if your political context was formed by a near depression, mm-hmm. a, a stalemate in Iraq, gas prices surging to $4 a gallon, and the, uh, Jack Abramoff, mm-hmm. the, the, botched, Jack Abramoff. the botched effort to reform Social Security, yeah. let's say that that was your political context and you saw that the Republicans were in charge. In that situation— 
I think you'd be inclined to be Democrat. And similarly, what's happened too with the Republicans is they've taken up a position of reflexive opposition to anything and everything Barack Obama proposes. Right. And of course, Barack Obama has not demonstrated that he really can compromise with people, so it's kind of my way or the highway. Right. In other words, Bill Clinton was very good at pivoting. Yeah. President Obama has Doesn't not. do that. So you have this toxic mixture of politics, but yeah. I do agree with you. Voters are more likely to be liberal. But here's an interesting catch, though. The Democrats have been in charge for eight years. The toughest thing to do if you're Hillary Clinton is say, what do I want to accomplish that President Obama has not already accomplished or tried to do so? Yeah. Theoretically, the Republicans have a very good opening. That's and right. if you look at polls, John Kasich does very, very well against Hillary Clinton. He just has this one small problem, and that is inability to catch on with primary voters. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out in the future. I'll ask this question, and then we'll to be continued in a couple of weeks yes. to talk more about this. We've talked about all five of the remaining candidates, and I think it's pretty clear from my perspective. I'm not in love with anybody in the group, uh, some <laughs> uh, less than others, as I'm sure you guys can oh, yeah. figure out. <laughs> but I do think the reality of what's going on in the country now is a lot more. What's what's a good word? Cynical. Cynical. Yes. Than before. And I'm wondering what the summer will bring, because you know about summers before political elections. Yes. They're often active. They uh, basically are the, determine the game. That's right. Yes. So then you expect Cruz to win Wisconsin. Yes. Trump likely will come in second place. Yes. And then Kasich. We expect Hillary on the other side to actually lose Wisconsin to Bernie Sanders. I think it's a likelihood, yes. So here is something that John Cuvion hates to do. He <laughs> hates it with a purple passion. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Of course. In two weeks, the major narrative could quite possibly be I think it's actually going to be four weeks, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Because well, we're back in two weeks to do the show. That's right, why I'm saying right. two weeks. Yeah. But well, here's okay. the, here's the thing. So if you're talking about New York, okay. everyone expects Trump to win. What the narrative then becomes is to what extent is Ted Cruz and or John Kasich competitive? Because one thing about New York, even though it is Donald Trump's home state, you also have a very strong brand of liberal Republican politics from the Rockefellers and Teddy Roosevelt and so forth. A little bit, a little bit, and so. Theoretically, some of these suburban Republicans could vote for someone else and muddy the waters. So I think the narrative there is going to be to what extent can another candidate whittle down the Trump lead. And so I think that's what the media is going to follow, not so much as whether Trump will win New York or not. The Democratic side, I think Hillary could win New York, but I think that Bernie Sanders has a chance of making her life miserable. <laughs> He's already doing that. Yeah, because it's funny. Even though the delegate counts clearly show a Clinton lead, that delegate count is partially padded with superdelegates. Hmm. The one thing superdelegates, like anybody else, respects the most is strength. That was what, in my opinion, enabled Barack Obama in 2008 to get over the top, yeah. was the fact that even though the superdelegates, and by superdelegates I'm talking about people who are unelected delegates who are uh, party insiders such as congressmen, senators, governors, people like that, even though by all rights that Democratic establishment 
should have been in Hillary Clinton's corner in 2008. The fact was, when Barack Obama won the primaries he needed to early on, that created such an aura of invincibility. Mm -hmm. When you had defections from Jimmy Carter and Al Gore and so forth, that's what really turned the tide for Obama. Because if you would actually look at the individual primaries, Barack Obama's later performances were not that impressive, no. to be honest with you. No. But he had an incredible string of good luck where there was there were caucus states and states with high black populations right. in the February contest. And he won like a string of the, like 10 or 11 or something like that in a row. That created this aura of invincibility. But if you were to peel back the covers and look at what happened to Ohio or Pennsylvania or whatever, Obama really didn't do that well. No. So that to me is going – but Bernie Sanders – hasn't really won those big states, but he hasn't won enough little states to where the superdelegates would want to switch because I think the superdelegates are thinking it's highly risky for me to knife the Clintons in the back unless there's a very good reason. And winning Arizona, Utah, and one big state, that is Michigan, mm -hmm. is hardly a reason to switch your allegiance. But I do think, though, that even though Hillary is certainly on track to get the nomination, Bernie's going to do well enough to where she's going to have to fight it out till June. <laughs> yeah, she just looks like she if she could push a button and make him go away, <laughs> she would. She yes. would absolutely do it. OK, John Cuvion, let's tell people how they can follow you and your fascinating take on politics, which is just one of the more enjoyable that I have ever heard. How can people follow you? Well, thank you. There's, there's several ways, Clay. First off, I have a website, winwithjmc.com. I periodically post analytical perspectives on mm -hmm. politics i love I, not I, just louisiana by the correct, way correct all 50 states yes certain uh, uh, the presidential contest is something that i've been following pretty much after the primary contest has concluded and i like looking at politics from the perspectives that few do like mm -hmm. such arcane things as primary turnout yeah and the narrative and so forth i don't necessarily get into the back and forth of delegate rules. No. But what I'm interested, what I like to do is kind of put politics into a human perspective. Yep. And that's that's what I write about. I also am on social media. Uh, my Twitter handle is at WinWithJMC. And I have a Facebook page, JMC Enterprises. I follow him on both. Uh, if you want to keep up with what's going on, he is the Rosetta Stone of politics. And I think that uh, it's good to hear a perspective from someone who's going to call balls and strikes and not uh, manipulate you using analysis. And I tell people I have a political view because I'm a person. Yes. But when it comes to calling balls and strikes, I'm not trying to help or hurt anybody. I'm just telling you what I think. And I think that's the way it works. And, you know, the part, of, the part about what I do that I love very much is I look at everything from a data-centric standpoint. Yeah. Now, sometimes that gets me in trouble, such as <laughs> last year when I commission, I had those polls I did for Channel 33 yeah. that showed that David Vitter was in serious trouble. And so I'm sure that I was not very popular amongst many people. But my attitude How'd was— How'd that work out? Well, <laughs> as, as we see, we have a Democratic governor. Yeah. And, yeah. But, you yeah. know, the, the interesting thing, though, was and, – and, I, and we, I know this was a topic we talked about. All the polling I did last year, I never really saw much growth from David Vitter. Nope. So He got what he got. Right. And that's the, that was, in a nutshell, the problem he had was he did not have the ability to grow his base, and that's why he lost. I mean, let me put you this way. If you're a Republican and you can only get 32 percent of the vote out of East Baton Rouge Parish, yep. that's a serious problem. It is. And, you know, we are during the summer, probably sometime. John has got at least a couple of appearances 
uh, for the next couple of, of months or so, because we're going to follow back up on the presidential stuff. But uh, right after that, we will be at the end of the legislative session and likely just before the beginning of the first of maybe two more special sessions coming up here uh, after the full session. And we'll talk about Louisiana politics and we'll grade the first six months of Governor John Bell Edwards and what he's doing. It's a little early in the game for that now, but we'll come back and talk about it. And the majority in the Republican House and Senate in the in the state legislature. So there's a lot to talk about a big political year. And we still haven't yet talked about the mayor's race for Baton Rouge, the mayor's race and parish president in East Baton Rouge Parish. So we got a lot to get into, man. I appreciate you making time and coming on with us again. It's a pleasure. John Cuvion back to wrap up in just a moment. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Clay Young and John Conroy here. John's the founder and owner of Pest Stop Do-It-Yourself Pest Control. Killing mosquitoes is a big deal. It's about comfort, but nowadays it's about safety as well, right? It really is. I mean, there's been a lot of buzz in the air about the Zika virus. Mm -hmm. And a lot of your experts are saying that, well, you know, the mosquitoes here don't carry that virus. Yeah. You want to put your family at risk on that? Better to be safe than stupid. Absolutely. And this isn't brain surgery. Right. You know, you, you can spray your yard and under your foliage and put out a product that will last a good three months between applications. So I just wouldn't risk it. And it works for you anyway. And you save lots of money Ooh. by not having to go to the big box stores. You really do. So how can we find this product? In Metairie, we're located at 3512 Severne Avenue, right next door to the Pepper Mill. On the North Shore, we're at 1417 North Highway 190. That's in the same shopping center as Sherman-Williams. On the West Bank, we're on the Palco, just past the Harvey Bridge. And in Baton Rouge, we're at 806 O'Neill Lane. This is the Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. All right, welcome back. James is not yet shooting spider webs out of his wrists from that coffee that he had. I'm climbing walls right but now. He, but he is climbing walls. He's, he's climbed the wall a couple times. So John Kubion was great. He talked a lot about the candidates, and you can see he calls balls and strikes uh, right down the middle. He'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about state politics. Let's talk about something we're doing next month. Smoke them if you got them. Ben 77. And it will, will be benefiting the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation. Taya Kyle and I, as you hear this, have done some uh, radio interviews. We're going to be doing a, a little bit more talking about the event. Uh, it is presented by Orion Instruments. In addition to Ben 77, Don Juan Cigar Company, CLE Cigar Company, Doze, Pest Stop, Do-It-Yourself, Pest Control, Jameson Whiskey. Who am I leaving out? Oh, Uh, yes. The most important. CYE is involved as well. And we're going to be there. And we're we're hoping to raise at least 20 grand this year. We're we're already $5,000 in. So we've got 15,000 left. How about that? So we want to sell a lot of tickets. You can go to the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation website. Uh, the payment page will be posted on, as if you're hearing this on the 7th, it's already there. So you'll be able to 
buy your ticket there. We're all going to be there at the event, mm-hmm. and it should be fun. Oh, definitely. Hopefully, it doesn't rain like it did last year. Praying for good weather. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, so it, it should be fun. Again, if you want to learn more about the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation, you can just Google them and or search them on social media. They do such great work. And again, their people are going to be in town for the event Sunday, May 15th. You'll be hearing more about that in weeks to come. So we're done with one. James has made his Your first, first one, podcast. James, look at that. It only took you, what, 57 shows? Oh, yeah. Is it? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes. yeah that's yes. right. What do you have to say for yourself, man? 50s, 50, you know. I mean, right here, like, my head is going faster than my lips. Is, is, is that right? Yeah. That's good. It's, it's the coffee. coffee. Is that the, <laughs> I'm telling you, that stuff's potent, man. Oh, it's good. Yeah. I think you can probably put it in your car and it'll go. <laughs> and she makes them strong. When Orlando makes them, they are strong. I do, but the cup walks into the room all by itself. So. Oh, yeah. But if you're going to drink coffee, you want coffee that's going to give you that oomph. Yeah, hey, you drink coffee for a reason, not for that taste. Well, Maybe some people. I but. drink it for the taste. Yeah, well, that's so not. So really you'd rather drink decaf than actual negative. Coffee. I still want the oomph, but I like the taste. Mm. Okay, agree to disagree. That ends another edition of Coffee <laughs> Chat here on Podcast Two Two Five. All right, so next week, uh, I don't know who's on the roster for next week. We do have a guest. You'll hear about it, I guess, in the days leading up to the show. And we are going to talk about smoking with some of the guys involved. And I'll get Don Sanders in here before the event. And we will uh, have some... Taya Kyle is going to be recording a commercial promoting the event. We'll play that here as well. All right. Thanks, James. Coming in, doing the show. So don't forget, you can hit the subscribe button at iTunes to catch the show there. Download that Talk 107.3 mobile app. It's free there as well. So here you go. You can get the show every week at iTunes. The Talk 107.3 mobile app, if she's recording me with that phone, it's just, it, that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah. We'll post that online, too. And the... <laughs> and probably not. <laughs> All right. Catch us next week. iTunes, the Talk 107.3 mobile app, and... Podcast225.com. Have a great one, y'all. Bye. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.